0: Do you want to be a leader who gets noticed, gets things done, and gets real results? Then you need influence and authority. Join host Jennifer McClure to learn how to build authority, expand your influence, and increase your impact. This is the Impact Makers Podcast with Jennifer McClure. Well, hello there, Impact Makers. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of the Impact Makers podcast, where my goal is to bring you tools, tips, and resources to build a career that you love and a life that matters. Today, I'm excited to share a conversation with my friend, Ben Brooks. Ben's a young guy, but he's already had a stellar career with some well-known Fortune 500 companies, and just a couple of years ago, he walked away from all of that to start his own company. But as you'll hear in our chat today... Becoming an entrepreneur wasn't originally part of his plan. Ben started his career working in one of the well-regarded management training programs at Enterprise Rental Car. You know, the people who always walk you to your car, shake your hand, and ask you how their service was today? From there, he moved on to Lockheed Martin, where as a self-professed aviation geek, he was able to connect his work with one of his passions. After working at Lockheed, he moved on to Oliver Wyman for a couple of years doing high-level management consulting work, and then he accepted an interim role with Marsh & McLennan Companies as their interim head of talent management. I think it's important to note here that Ben wasn't a, quote, HR guy. He was asked to take on this role because of his business smarts and his data-driven and strategic approach. Something to think about. That interim role ultimately turned into Ben becoming the VP and Practice Leader for Human Capital Performance at Marsh, and then the Senior Vice President and Global Director of Enterprise Communications and Colleague Engagement. And Ben couldn't just have impressive titles in these major companies. He and his teams did some amazing and award-winning work, putting systems and processes in place to engage thousands of employees around the world. They utilized social media and technology to improve communications and learning, in a big and impressive way. And while things were going great for him career-wise, there came a time when he felt that he needed to move on to something else. What was that something else? Well, he wasn't quite sure. So he took a sabbatical of sorts to focus on personal reflection and personal development. And during that time, found himself attending a training program where he was serendipitously and randomly given a name tag with the title entrepreneur. After first resisting that designation, Once the conference was over, a spark had been ignited. So in 2016, Ben founded his own company called Pilot Inc., which is an innovative career improvement company revolutionizing the way leaders and companies grow and engage their top talent. But like most things in life, his entrepreneurial journey has not always gone as originally planned. And that's been a good thing. Welcome, Ben Brooks, to the Impact Makers podcast. How are you doing on a bright and sunny New York City day, Ben?
1: I am fired up and ready
0: to go. Oh my goodness, I've heard that before somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I've shared a little bit with everyone about who you are kind of professionally in your background, but I always like to start with, tell me a little bit about who Ben Brooks is. Kind of start wherever you want in your story and tell us a little more about you. Well, who Ben Brooks is?
1: Um, I think w- when I when I uh, when I go on dates, it's always interesting what sort of emerges and how people look at me in that regard. And I think um, I'm a pretty unique, unique mix of things. My life experiences have been pretty all over the place, and um, but I think the biggest thing when I think about myself, I did a lot of work on kind of a life statement a few years ago, and it was all about having an impact, mm-hmm. and helping people maximize their potential. Those are kind of the two big things, and I think. You know, I, I, when I die, I don't, I don't necessarily don't I want to be buried, but if I had a tombstone, I wanted to say, like, you know, made a big impact and help people maximize their potential, something like that. Maybe a little less corporate sounding, but, but, you know, made a difference. Well, and then you are in the right
0: place, obviously, here on the yes. Impact Makers podcast. But life statement, tell me more about that. Tell me about that process.
1: Um, I had just gone through, you know, I, I'm sort of... You know, as a coach, I'm always interested in getting better, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of being the best version of myself, and um, and it was just a very simple kind of declarative, you know, statement about you know who I was, what people could count on me for, what I'm committed to, but it was in a couple just different words, and I. Uh, did that a few years ago, and it's just resonated and been a nice thread to kind of pull through things. And it was less about something that I needed to communicate explicitly, but more about something that guided who I was going to be every day and guided my behaviors and my decisions.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's interesting. We'll talk more about, obviously, some of the things you're doing with your coaching. Um, but I know I connected with you a few years ago when you were in the corporate world and have learned about you and, and of course, again, looked at your bio. and And you've got that kind of classical good education, start out as a, in a great management training program, do the consulting kind of thing. So was that your path that you, you know, chose kind of when you were in university and getting your education? What was it that you thought you wanted to do?
1: Well, when I was little, I wanted to be a game show host.
0: Well, of course. I, sounds I thought
1: Bob like Bob Barker, you know, <laughs> but not the sexual harassing Bob Barker, like the good Bob Barker, right? <laughs> the uh, animal
0: ma- lover, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Or maybe Alex Trebek or Pat Sajak or one of, you know, something like that. Um, mm-hmm. it, you know, and then I thought about being a journalist and you know being a politician. And by the time I came around to college it was very clear that I was interested in business. I was interested in business and I loved transportation as well, aviation okay. and things. But um, I thought I was gonna get I you know, had a bunch of job offers I turned, you know, censure and other ones I sort of turned down and I thought I was going to be working in medical device sales, actually, for Stryker, and got to a final round interview, and the day before graduation, I found out I didn't get that job, and oh. so kind of okay. what I thought I was, I changed my major four or five times in college, all in business, but I wound up as a marketing major and leadership uh, science minor, and um, and just, you know, ended up, you know, feeling like quite a, uh, kind of felt like a loser, because I, here I'd gone to this great school, and got a 3.9 GPA, and studied abroad, and some student government, and all these things, right? I did college very well. In high school, I was not a good student, but college, I was a very, very, very good student, very involved, and wound up at, uh, at Lockheed Martin. And you know, it was a very interesting experience working on a classified spy plane development program at 22 years old and learning lean six sigma and getting my black belt training and things. So, it's certainly not what I could have imagined, but it was. Um, and it was it was a tough experience. I was there for about a little over three years. But I learned so much and it was such a great sort of training ground. I mean, Lockheed and Enterprise Rent-A-Car, where, I, where I'd gone through their management training program, were both consistently you know, on the uh, Business Week sort of top 10 places to start a career list just because of the amount of training and the structure and the rigor that they put into people. And Enterprise, you know, hires more college graduates than any other company in America. And it's just, you know, there's a regimented way, you know, if, if, you know, when people go to rent an Enterprise, you probably see that sort of process and, um and so i got to learn a lot of really good things and i think i'm so glad as i'm an entrepreneur now that i had spent you know a decade in the corporate world first to learn sort of what good looked like at a larger scale in a lot of different industries from very very smart people
0: mm-hmm. so what was were maybe a couple of takeaways that you got from that time at lockheed martin
1: like have a plan you know when have you're a building plan. a when you're building a you know you know multi-billion dollar program whether it's radios or airplanes or whatever that can take 10 years you need to know in year two, if you're behind, you can't find out in year nine, if you're not going to make it, you you know, know? budget wise or progress wise. Um, You know, and I think a lot of it too was around was around communication and coordination because the scale was so large of things and people were in different countries and sites. And so um, I ended up on an airplane a lot, managing relationships, but it was not about like sales. You know, it was about getting people to be coordinated and working out issues and managing personality things. And so you know, looking at relationship management as a way to coordinate and move and drive projects. It was mm-hmm. a big thing. It, was, it wasn't about taking people out and saying out drinks or anything. It was about, you know, working out what we were dealing with in that regard. And then I think in the, the Lean Six Sigma training I went through, um, when I went through the Black Belt program, I just learned so much about how to think about a problem and solve it and structure it. Um, both the hard science skill of that, and then the soft science of change and getting people aligned and excited, mm-hmm. um, and it's been a framework that I, I mean I just use it all the time. I'm just always thinking about how do I reduce waste, you know, re- de- de- decrease steps, you know, make it higher quality, whatever in anything I do.
0: Well, that's great training. Yeah. So from there, where did you go after Lucky?
1: Um, I had a uh, a mentor that I had met in Denver through my university through a round table that happened every month and. He had lived in uh, South America for like 20 years working for DHL, senior executive. And so he was really great. And he said, you have to read what color is your parachute? And I said, okay. And he said, you have to do all of the exercises and I won't meet with you until that's done.
0: Well, that's really, a great mentor. Do, great rit- men- <laughs> Do as <Yeah>. I say.
1: <laughs> totally. And, and, I, and I think a, I, I respond well to sort of a knuckle cracker or someone with rigor, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it took me a while. I mean, it's a 350-page book and a ton of exercises. So it took me like about two months to get through it. And I finally called Michael back and I said, let's talk. And he said, well, you could be, you know, you really could be in operations, sales or consulting. Those are the three things that I think are probably going to fit for you. And, and we both agree that consulting, management consulting, is probably the best way for me to get a lot more exposure. And so I just was, didn't really know how to get into consulting though. And I was flying home from Phoenix one day and I used to go to Phoenix every other week for work and I ended up staying in a different hotel than I usually stay at. Cause there was a NASCAR race, which I think is like fate as a part of all of it. And <laughs> I had the U S you know, the very sophisticated USA today that I was reading on the airplane. And I had been thinking about, gosh, I want to work in consulting, but I really like aviation, but I like this lean six Sigma thing, but I would like to do something international And I'm reading this article about airlines and it quotes this guy and he's the head of the global aviation Lean Six Sigma management consulting practice at the firm that Oliver Wyman Mercer Management Consulting, that was the firm I was most interested in. I was like, wait, this is a thing? Like all of these things, I thought I had to choose. And so I went home and essentially internet stalked John and, you know, read all these white papers thinking like, you know, I was naive. I thought he wrote these white papers. I realized realize he had a whole tribe of people like writing these things for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, white papers are generally not that interesting, right? Um, I was glued to these like a John Grisham novel, like, <laughs> you, know, was, you know, about how to like, you know, you know, get more seats on an airplane or, you know, whatever. So, um, and I finally just decided, and they didn't have any jobs posted on their, their website, but I just decided that um, I, I should reach out to him, right? And I, there was this epic pool party. I lived in Denver at the time, and I just bought a house. And there's this epic pool party. I was super excited. About I said, "You know, what? I have got to get this letter out." And it took me about seven hours to write a one and a half page letter. But it was very bold, and I was just like, "Hey, like I read about you in USA Today. I've like looked at your you know biography and site. I want to work for your firm. I want to work in this industry. And by the way, I'm going to do it with or without your firm. But you're my number one choice." And I said, "Here's a slide deck of like you know how I'd like to change the industry." And it was why well, I used it for an interview with an airline. And I said. Um, and I said, I, you know, I said, I'm going to call you next week to set up time for us to have lunch. And he lived in Dallas. I was in Denver and I said, I'll fly to Dallas at my expense to talk about my career with you. And I just was just pretty straight. And like, this wasn't, no one really suggested this. This wasn't like some template or some blog I wrote. I just felt compelled, right. To just put this, you know, to put this out there. And then, um, and I said, I said, PS, enjoy the airplane. And anyone in the aviation business loves model airplanes, men and women, they're like kids. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I had the Singapore Airlines A380. It hadn't even, had not even flown yet. It was a double-decker plane. So it was like, this was like kryptonite, right? Catnip sort of thing. And as yeah. and I, and so I put that in the box, I put the letter in the box, I put the slide deck in the box, and I go to FedEx, and I overnight it, and I get signature tracking and all that. And then I panicked, and I was like sweating, thinking, are they going to like call the police? Am I a stalker? Is this, like <laughs> I had like total like remorse, you know, because I like kind of put myself out there. Then I was in that anxious waiting period. And I saw that it got signed for at 11.30 a.m. And then I was like, well, at least it got there. And at 1.30 p.m., I had an email from this guy, Alex. And Alex was not in the Dallas office where I sent the thing, he was in the New York office. And he was an associate partner and he said, hey, um, we got your letter and I'd love to speak. Can we talk tomorrow? And within two hours, you know, we already had like a conversation set up. Well, I didn't realize the conversation was a full on interview, including a case interview, which I wasn't really prepared for. Mm -hmm. Um, But nonetheless, I got through it and did pretty well. And they had me take this math and logic test online, which, of course, I didn't finish. And I, again, panicked. um, And I realized the test is not designed to be finished, right, like a lot of assessments in the interviewing process. And then I got a call thinking they were going to say, hey, like, you know, it was nice talking to you, but, you know, you didn't do so. And I said, hey, you nailed the logic test, right? And then later that week, they flew me to Chicago, and I was on the plane on the way home. I said, and then the next week, I was at at my job at Lockheed Martin, and um, I got a call, and I said, hey, like, you know, we'd like to interview you. Um, You know, can you come to New York? And I said, well, like, sure, when? And they said, well, are you available tomorrow? And I said, well, you can't really do a same day trip from Denver, right? So And so the woman said, okay, well, I just booked you a flight at five o'clock. And it just, it was, it didn't even really ask, right? She didn't
0: it's, ask. <laughs>
1: it's, it's one o'clock and I'm in Denver in the foothills, like an hour from my house. And I have a 5 p.m. flight to New York, right? And so I just said to my boss, I said, I've got to go and I'll be out tomorrow. Something has come up. Um, you know, and I left and, and I had like no money at the time, but I had gone out getting ready to think about career change. I bought out a new tie. I bought this, um, this nice Zanya tie. That was the only like nice, you know, and I put on this kind of crappy suit I had and I packed my stuff and I ran to the airport and I go check in and they put me in first class and I sit next to this executive from Avaya who had hired the firm a bunch of times and she gave me all these tips about, you know, the firm and whatever. And just, it was amazing. And I, and I ended up had an interview there the next day and you know, that my last interview was finally with John the guy that I read about in USA Today. And John, you know, when I left the room said, you're going to love working here. And oh, wow. when I woke up the next morning in Denver at 8 a.m., I had a letter, offer letter, FedEx to me. They had their stuff together. You That's know? amazing. And, um, two, you know, two or three weeks later, I lived, was moved to New York. They said, you can move Chicago or New York, you choose. And same salary, by the way. And um, and so, I, you know, Chicago, I love, and it's fantastic, I've been there a million times. New York scared me. I knew two people there including my little sister who had just moved there. And I thought, let's try New York. And that was, you know, 10 and a half years ago.
0: Well, now you are, you're Mr. New York. You love New York, right?
1: Love New York. It is, it is home.
0: Yes. Well, I love the career story or the, the interview story is in your coaching with people today. And again, we'll talk a little bit more about that soon. Do you recommend sometimes that people take that um, aggressive in an approach to try to get the job that they believe they should have?
1: Yeah, I mean, having been a hiring manager in companies and having a company where I hire people, you know, it's it's very um, attractive when people are hungry, right? When they're clear. Mm-hmm. And I think with recruiting technology, most of which is garbage, you know, you, in one click, you can apply and people spam and they just sit all day and you get all these crappy resumes and people that aren't a good fit. And it's just so passive and sort of lazy. And so anytime I think someone does something to stand out, it makes me interested, you know? Mm-hmm. And so when I tell people, if they want things that they probably need to work around the system. They don't want to be in the trough with everyone else, right? Mm-hmm. You want to find the kind of the, the different entrance, the different way to go about it, right? Or, or do parallel paths and do both. And so I definitely tell people whether it's um, a job opportunity, and I don't do too much coaching or recruiting, but, in, but if it's job opportunity or it's, a, it's a, an award or a conference to attend or a thing um, is that, that you have to advocate for yourself. Mm-hmm. And when we were founding our company, we talked to a professor of career science, um, and he, you know, is in his late sixties and this is what he studied his whole career. And he said the number one, his research showed the number one determinant of satisfaction in a career. So distinct from success, true satisfaction was the degree to which a person advocated for themselves. And so, you know, and, and it comes up a lot in our coaching and we talk a lot about differences in gender related to that. And a lot of things that come up around that. And, um, and I just look at, and I tell people that, you know, in general, you need to take more risks. There's very few people I find Um, that take enough risk in their career, in particular, if they're, you know, older than 30, Mm -hmm. right, our our risk appetite just goes down. In some ways, we're in a much better position to take risk later in life. You know, Um, we've got more money and stability and knowledge and connections, and yet people get really safe and stiff and things. So I think part of it is the self-advocacy and part of it is the risk taking. And in general, people are not doing enough of either of those sort of things.
0: Mm -hmm. Did you ever see where the model plane ended up? Did John end up with it?
1: John, it was in the Dallas office, even though the best part is John didn't even work in the Dallas office. He lived in San Diego because his wife had some great job there. And he's like in the, he's like a shadow employee at the Dallas office. He, he'd go like every like, you know, eight weeks or something, you know? Okay. So I, I wound up in the Dallas office maybe six months later and, and, uh, and people were like, Oh, you're the guy that sent the plane, you know, like people there.
0: <laughs> you were legendary at that point.
1: <laughs> totally. And, and I've just found, you know, in my career, and in my life, there's been a number of other times where I've sort of pitch something kind of unsolicited or advocated for something and it often works out. Sometimes mm-hmm. it works out different or better than I even pitched. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the, in the great recession, when I was at the, my consulting firm with the John hired me, Yeah, they asked all of us to take about <clears throat> three or four months off to help avoid layoffs, right? Because consulting is a discretionary spend. And so let's have some people take, get off the rolls for a bit. And I knew all these people at Citibank and I was planning to do sort of like a rotation at Citibank. Well, Citibank wasn't doing so hot in the recession. And so all my friends at Citibank were gone. Like no one had jobs anymore. And I remember my parents um, being very helpful. My parents were lovely and being very helpful. Um, they, they, off, they, they found an opportunity for me to drive a tractor in West Texas,
0: way to go, parents.
1: <laughs> and I was like, what a fall from grace. Here I am, like I moved to Manhattan. I've been there for like two and a half years. I'm like, you know, like traveling all over the world and, you know, all these things and and international business. And then I'm driving and I said, you know, there could be some like book I could write out of this or some like, you know, Zen meditation, you know, art of motorcycle maintenance sort of thing. But I was like, I'm not ready for that moment in my life. So, So you didn't do it? Didn't do it. But I did, you know, see an opportunity in diversity to help the chief diversity officer at our parent company. And I just had a friend help me out and I wrote a slide with three columns and it was just like, you know, why you need more help in diversity, you know, why this is going to help you in your career and why I'm the right guy for you. And I didn't, he didn't have a role. I just let me do a rotation, you know?
0: So this would have been unpaid?
1: uh, this would I said paid because it was our parent company, but you know, the parent company had more money. So consulting was, you know, insurance was still happening and Immerser was part of that and all that. So they were making plenty of money. Mm -hmm. And so I just sent him this note, and again, and it was a slide, and, and he knew me, we'd met a couple of times, right, and uh, through a, a whole set, another set of stories, but I, I you know, sent this email at five 5.50 p.m., I remember, 5.50 p.m. on a Wednesday, and at 5.55, I got a response back to him. When I was on the Blackberry, you could kinda of tell. And yeah. He said, you know, Ben, I'm very encouraged, my assistant will be reaching out to schedule a meeting with you, and she called a minute later, and I th- proposed three months of working for the head of diversity who worked for him, he was the head of CHRO, and he I went into his office and and he said, you know, I got another offer for you. And I said, Well, what? You know, I said, Well, diversity would be good, but when you think about your career and da-da-da-da, he's like, I need some help with talent management. And he's like, you know, do you want to come help be kind of my interim head of talent management as we kind of build this function from the ground up because it had been kind of all decimated? And I didn't really know what talent management. Fully was, <laughs> and so I nodded, smiled, I smiled and nodded confidently, and then I scrambled to my desk to Google it. You know, and, Google
0: talent management.
1: Yes, and and uh, and then I was the head of talent management. You know, and so that was, and then he said that it worked for me for nine months, and then that was how I got into HR. Right, but it started with just again advocating for myself, taking a little risk, even in the face of you know driving a tractor or, or like not having you know compensation, even even sort of um, a breakdown, still created opportunity.
0: Interesting. So, as the head of talent management, what were some projects or tasks that you kind of either were assigned to take on, or that you saw and grabbed hold of?
1: Well, we were in the process of uh, quite a bit of cost takeout, so they're like, "Oh, you're a management consultant; you can help us with this." So I thought, "Wait, well, hey, I thought I was doing talent management." And then I, you know, helped pull you know, I don't know, thirty or forty million dollars out of the global HR function, and you know, the, all the corporate functions were tasked with that. So I helped my boss um, with that and to coordinate five different. Operating companies and to look very good to the executive committee and the board, so he was very grateful. And, and that was kind of my first thing. But then a lot of it was around um, engagement. I rolled out our first global engagement survey that the company had done in years. We did it uh, an identified survey, so we could do a lot more um, analytics and, and robust, um, you know, insights we could generate from it. And then, you know, I started implementing social media, and I, I didn't really call it that, but because was scared of it. But this was, you know, two thousand I don't know nine. And, you know, having people have discussions across the world and come together and say, what should we do about these problems and put the employees, give the employees a part to play. Mm-hmm. And so I got to do a lot of things, you know, in that regard and then help just kind of, you know, do a lot of work around culture. And I brought, we um, brought in some a pretty intensive experience an offsite sort of experience with the consultancy where kind of like get complete about our lives. And it's almost like a big group therapy thing for multiple days that I, read a book about and I called the author and you know he I flew him to our offices and he pitched the thing and then we did it and it was hundreds of thousands of dollars but it just like my idea but it helped kind of bring things together and shift the company in a totally different direction and here I was just helping with that and then of course we got into traditional nine blocks talent reviews and succession planning and a variety of things like that and I just I just used my consulting expertise even even with our executive committee and you know Marshall McClen is a fortune 250 company 12 billion dollar revenue company and I created a succession risk index, right? Mm -hmm. And I gave it, and it was just, you know, it's a spreadsheet with some scoring and weighting and it's pretty simple, but I, you know, did color coding and I created a risk index score for each of the executives and I rank ordered them. And boy, if you rank order an executive and you put it in front of all of them, they haven't seen, they were like, general counsel's looking at the CFO who's looking at the head of this business. And, (laughs) you know, but you know, I kind of gamified it. Even succession, I gamified. And executives are very competitive And so it forced a lot of really good conversation just because we presented the information in a way that had, you know, kind of showed some winners and losers. And that, you know, really created some urgency around something that succession is something that's very important, but typically not urgent. And we made it more urgent.
0: So when you ranked them, were these objective or subjective criteria that you use? Uh,
1: Objective, just around the, the how many people are in the pipeline and how many, you know, do you have an ideal next or an emergency cover and how many and, you know, and are they in different regions? And we had, you know. This were all based upon, you know, even what they put in their pipeline. So, you know, it really was, you know, that handicapped towards to their advantage, right? Mm-hmm. We didn't necessarily say, oh, that person shouldn't be in there. We saying even your own self-selected succession, you know, we gave them scores on. So, you know, whatever story they wanted to tell. And some of them who had kind of, you know, half-assed it, they, you know, they got a lower score.
0: That is awesome. So when you've mentioned a couple of times your, you took your consulting skills there, what, what would you say are those skills or what are some of the skills that you apply?
1: So one of the things that's really uncomfortable in consulting is getting assigned to a new industry or a new type of consulting capability and literally having no idea. And this is why saying yes to talent management was not a big thing. Because in consulting, I remember you know being told on a thursday that on sunday i was flying to zurich for two months to work in you know engine maintenance for airplanes at the old swiss air maintenance and there was you know suck bang hiss blow or whatever there's like four (laughs) stages of a jet engine right and i'm reading jet engines for dummies on the plane and you know and and then you know and there i am on monday you know chasing a pair of um of the blades that are on the outside of the engine that you see, right um, I'm following them through the facility with a little meter to see how far they actually physically move. And I'm using the SAP work order. And I saw that they were washed 12 times, even though by specification they'll need to be washed twice. And they traveled something like 11 kilometers through the building. And it took like, you know, 90 days to get these things through or whatever, you know. And in reality, it should be take 10 days, right? So, um, so you know, here I am just like figuring it out. So I think part of consulting is, is not being afraid of not being experienced in something. Mm -hmm. And just using logic and curiosity, and we call other people and interview them and read primers and things like that. But that was probably, you know, I learned so many skills in consulting, but just um, the sort of intellectual confidence to wade into an area that we didn't know about Mm -hmm. and to learn quickly, right? And then also just to drive work. I mean, you know, we would do more in a day than an internal team could do in a quarter, Mm -hmm. right? Because we just say, hey, you're gonna do this, we're gonna figure out that. You know, and just a lot of micro techniques, even about upward management or about um, time boxing things where rather than say, you know, like, uh, how long will this work take to get done? You say, here's how much time I'm going to give to this work. And when I'm out of time, the work is done, okay. right? So it could be like researching something on the internet is a great thing to time box. Google can be a whole, right? You could spend three hours researching versus saying, I'm going to set a timer for 30 minutes and find the best information I can on this topic. And at the end of that, I'm done. Mm -hmm. So a variety of different things and then just, you know, flexibility and agility and, you know, working with people all over the world, you know, and I'm in Mexico with Aeromexico helping with their bankruptcy and, you know, they put a vest on me and I'm in the middle of people asking me customer service questions in Spanish and I'm having to manage that. And, you know, I speak, you know, half decent Spanish, but, but reconfiguring the check-in queues and, and again, just like making a decision and trying something, measuring it, seeing if it works and then modifying and, Mm -hmm. and not having it be. Overly planful. I think some of the corporate stuff is you know you, you build a plan and then you're only incented on executing a plan, even if the plan's ineffective. Mm-hmm. That like that's the you know. Whereas this was a much more like we had to actually prove results, right? right? We had to like make a difference, and that was a very different. That was much more entrepreneurial.
0: Yeah. So when you finished up your time there at Marsh, what kind of you had you had progressed from being the head of talent management? How did you end up there?
1: So then I, you know, one of the parent or sister company, or, or I guess the subsidiary company is Marsh, um, which is the largest insurance broker in the world. Um, the head of HR asked me we were we had done one of the, the offsite, the multi-day kind of group therapy thing. And we're in a black car coming back from Long Island to New York City. And she said, well, I know you're supposed to go back to consulting, but do you want to come work for me? And I said, well, Lori, like what, what would I do? She goes, well, we have a lot to do. So why don't you write a job description and we'll look at it on Monday and you know a week later we had agreed and i was a vice president of you know human capital strategy and talent management and it turned into workforce analytics and internal communications and you know drove um a very pioneering at the time uh, social media instance that we won a lot of awards whether it's i.t or learning or cfo or talent and really tapped into the expertise of our, our company and did a bunch of work around culture and things and it was really really fun and got to do a lot of things and then Ended up as a senior vice president and actually their marketing function then wanted to absorb me because they saw I was so good at change and marketing. So I ended up reporting, um, my last role there was reporting to the CMO. Mm-hmm. And then I decided to take some time off and I've never wanted to be an entrepreneur. Never, it's never really been in my plan, right? Um, and and I just thought I was going to take some time off and be the head of HR at a mid-sized company. And I was interviewing at a couple of mid-sized companies. I thought, you know, mm-hmm. we let's do this. And, and really took a liking. I never thought I wanted to be in HR. And once I was in HR, I was like, there's so much opportunity. The bar is really low. There's a lot of really good people in HR too that like want help. They want some leadership. They want people that are good at driving and managing things. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, gosh, let's, let's do this. And then, you know, I did some executive education. And again, it's like so many things in my life are like these weird little like signs from above. Um, I went to this, you know, executive education a thing at a university for five days with a company that wanted me to work for them. I said, come take our course and see. And they put a name tag and said, Ben Brooks entrepreneur. And I said, Oh no, no, I'm unemployed. You know,
0: <laughs> Ben Brooks unemployed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause I was like, that'd be like, you know, or like you know, in transition or something. <laughs> and, and they said, no, you're in a group and you're in the entrepreneur's group. I said, well, I'm not an entrepreneur. I've like never really been an entrepreneur. I should maybe be in this group or that group. But Some of them were companies or industries. So I said, no, no, like, I said, just go to this group. And you know, four or five days later, that was like my tribe. Like you're my favorite people at this thing. And I just was driving home and I was driving and I usually take the train to, to DC where this was, but I was, I drove for some reason and I was on this bridge in Delaware and it's kind of foggy and I was listening to, I don't know what I was listening to. And, and I just thought I can be an entrepreneur or I can be an employee. And those are, that's a fork in the road. And the things that I would need to do to be successful as an entrepreneur are like almost entirely different than as if I was an employee right now, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I decided to take on being an entrepreneur as an identity Mm-hmm. like not, like I didn't have a business idea or a business plan, you yeah. know, I just, I just decided that I wanted to be an entrepreneur from like a, like an ontological perspective, like from like, a, that's who I was going to be. Yeah. Right. And that, and then it was great. I have a lot of friends that are older than me and many of whom have done a variety of cool things. And I said, they're like, listen to the market. And I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> where, like, where is the little, where, where do I put the glass against the wall to listen to the market? Right. You know? And, and they said, just literally listen to people's problems and solve them and then charge them money for it. And okay. I was like, okay. And I mean, like award-winning, like, you know, interior designers, people have done stuff in nonprofit, people have done commercial businesses, they've sold smart people giving me this advice. And, you know, I've been giving people advice since I was like 12 years old, typically to people much older than me. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, gosh, maybe I should just start charging for it. And that was literally kind of the, the genesis of a business coaching practice. And so my first client is a, you know, architectural digest, top 100 interior designer. Um, he just, like, he's like Mike Bloomberg's exclusive designer. He does that level of sort of work. And, mm-hmm. um, and you know, and my friend introduced me and, you know, I'm so used to consulting I wasn't as used to coaching or advice. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and he's like, and he says, well, how much is on the phone? How much does that cost? I said, well, we'll have breakfast. There's my neighbor, we'll have breakfast and I'll write a proposal. So everything's super clear. There's been no surprises. And he's like, but I, you know, and I says, but how much it I said, well, I don't know what you need, right? You know, this is my first experience <laughs> here. And, and I'm thinking I'm going to be in like a homeless shelter. You know, I'm thinking I'm so <laughs> worried about money, you know, and feeling very insecure about it all and, and, uh, and very anxious. And, and then he says, he's like, how much is the breakfast? Oh. And, free. And, 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 I, and I was like, I said, well, it's part of my, I said, it's part of my sales process, right? You know? Um, and he goes, well, I'm expecting you're going to give me some advice at the breakfast, even initially. And I don't believe in free advice. So how much does it cost? And I said, it's $500. He goes, great. I will see you on Monday. So I had a 45 minute breakfast and I made 500 bucks and you know, and that was the start of a and great you relationship. <laughs> you know, that was a great relationship, you know, uh, that I still work with that, that company today. And I just found that, um, you know, being in consulting, you know, consulting serves the fortune 1000 super well, but you know, all the job growth and economic growth in the country is these small companies.
0: Mm-hmm. right?
1: And there's not many people servicing them. And if they are, they're super niche or focused on like one particular thing. right? Mm -hmm. And they, what they needed was almost a chair of the board for the company, for the board they didn't have to talk about everything about people, about their own leadership, about sales, about technology, about risk, about cash, money, pricing, you name it. Right. Mm -hmm. And they didn't need the world's leading expert. They just needed someone who was marginally more experienced than they were in that thing or could bring in different questions, hold them accountable. And so I started working with a whole variety of different entrepreneurs, um, across, you know, fine artists and, uh, tech startups and, you know, a whole, you know, real estate people, marketing studios, you name it. And, um, and then soon came people that said, Hey, I want you to do the same thing for me as an executive in my company. And they wanted more kind of executive coaching, but with a more business lens on it, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then pretty quickly, you know, as I was getting into that, I was just seeing how powerful I had a, a sold out business, um, within like a year and a half, which I just couldn't see coming. And my first, I, I my first year, I didn't even have a website. You know, that's one of the things I think people are like, what? I said, I spent a total of $88 on marketing and that was my moo.com order for business cards. That wasn't even <laughs> my own logo. That was just their crappy template, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, um, you know, but it was just all about meeting people and closing deals and figuring it out. And, um, but then I just realized with coaching it seemed to me given, you know, the, the median price of an executive coach in America, according to Harvard Business School, is $500 an hour. Okay. And in New York, the rate is more than that. And so when you look at that, it basically means that unless your company's paying for it, which means you're probably like an AC suite or SVP sort of role,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, or you have the kind of money to be able to afford that, which means you're probably in the top one or 2% of income earners, you're probably not going to get coaching. Yeah. So I kind of just did a rough calculation. That probably, you know, about 98% of people are never going to get executive coaching, you know? And I thought, how do we democratize this? Because if people, I had I had a coach in my 20s, and it was like a it was a rare sort of thing. But I, you know, I advocated for myself, and I got a coach, and it was a game changer. And he was in his mid 60s, a PhD, he won multiple Grammys, super interesting guy. And we talked every single week, and he was hard on me, but like it was exactly what I needed. Mm-hmm. And I thought, how do we give this to more people? And so that's when I you know put my life savings. Um, I sold a house I own, and I'm from a very middle class background, so my life savings is like not like Kushner money. This is like, <laughs> like my, this is like money I, pay, I I earned and then paid taxes on and then saved, right? Um, and so, um, all different things. Um, and uh, you know, started pilot. You know, with this idea of democratizing coaching, giving people sooner in their careers, pushing it further down the period uh, pyramid, and then also just having people realize that like there's something that they can do about their situation. Right? Like yeah. work doesn't have to suck. So many people are miserable with work. And I, if you're operating a jackhammer, I get it. That's probably harder to make that a great job. Mm-hmm. But so many people are in jobs that I'm like, this doesn't have to suck. In fact, you know, like, like you're the issue here, right? Or you can, you know, some people that hop jobs, you know, and, and the recruiting industry, unfortunately is, you know, uh, incented on people changing jobs, not incentivized on people being successful. They're incented on people changing jobs, and so uh, they make money. So they want people to change jobs. called call it the mm-hmm. recruiting industrial complex. And so, um, not. A, and so, you know, I said like, rather than change jobs, let's figure out how you can find more satisfaction and success in your career. And if changing jobs comes about, that's great. That's sort of the default answer for making things better is leaving. And if you're in a in a romantic relationship. It would just be like you know swiping on Tinder for more people, and just you know bailing. And I thought, like, how do we have more of a marriage counseling like approach to figure out how do we make this work?
0: So, how does the pilot business model work? You know, how do I engage with Pilot as a customer?
1: It's effortless and fabulous. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: um,
1: we tried, was we launched as a consumer company, and we pretty quickly realized that uh, people really liked our product. But there was across generations; it wasn't just a millennial thing. They said, "My company should pay for this." even though we were focused on the employee's happiness and things, there was still a lot of entitlement. We talked to a lot of analysts in the HR tech space and they're like, Oh yeah, you're about 10 years too soon on people paying for their own career development. Right. Um, that people in general are, will pay for undergrad or graduate school for some reason that makes sense, even though there's like all the debt in the bubble with that, but these other things which are much more affordable, there's some sort of resistance on that. So um, we shifted our sales strategy to selling to companies. And so, We work with companies to provide our product to their employees. And so companies like MetLife or Cadillac, Pinterest, City Year, uh, we have some banks we're working with, Pandora Radio. And we work with cohorts of employees for a year or more and pilots a gentle tap on the shoulder to help them prioritize their own development every single week. And they engage with us through coaching activities and assignments through their phone and through text message. And then they get together every five or six weeks for live group video coaching with one of our coaches. it's a, when, you, when they buy into Pilot, they're buying into a broad-based perspective on what it takes to be successful and satisfied in a career. And they're often, you know, engaging in things. And again, 90 plus percent of people that are involved in Pilot, um, even though they're often high-income earners at different companies, have never had a coach. So we're, we're plowing sort of untouched ground.
0: So what really drives career satisfaction? Have you, have you come to some findings after a couple of years of doing this and working with groups of people?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's highly personal. You know, even people in the same role, you could have, you know, 18 HR business partners and you'd have 18 different permutations for what is satisfaction. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, self-awareness is, is not a strong suit of a lot of people and, and less around like their flaws, their quirks, but even what matters to them, their values. Right. You know, we ask. there's a great book called, how will you measure your life? Um, and from a Harvard professor that got cancer and it was terminal and he was evaluating in a business school, like way, how to measure his life on his deathbed. Of course he ends up living. He gives a lecture on it it turns into the most popular course at Harvard business school. Many wrote a book. So we think how we you measure your career like when you retire, how will you look back and say, how did I do? Was this good? Right. Mm-hmm. And well beyond like, do I have enough money to retire, which is important. Right. But you know, to, at a higher level. And so we help to ask people the questions to think around what are their values, you know, what motivates them, you know, and, and uh, you know, what sort of things do they want to be involved in? How do they diversify beyond their job and use their professional skills in other domains. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, what kind of impact can they have? And so, um, so, so what it, what what it means to find satisfaction is a, is a nubby complex uh, multivariate equation, but we help people kind of figure out one variable at a time over time. And uh, it's a little, little like, um, I don't know if it's, you know, kids playing Marco Polo in the pool, right? You're getting closer and closer, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And eventually people get really excited about it. It's like a hog looking for a truffle because they're like (laughs) seeking it, right? You know? So that's um that's that's a bit about how we think about
0: satisfaction. I, I just wrote a note. You, you said he wrote a book on how do you measure your life. You've obviously got to write the book on how you measure your career. And I think you just gave a great subtitle. It's a multivariate something. So <laughs> <No. laughs> we need to go something, back and something. listen to that. That was yeah. great. <laughs> exactly. You know,
1: we probably like I'm sure that the the book publishers will be like, okay, we need to just take the <laughs> Just a little, bit, a little bit more accessible on the bookshelf. And that could be inside the jacket, maybe, you know.
0: So yeah. after okay, so how long has pilot been a, a thing? When did you actually start?
1: We started uh, in fall of 2014. We launched officially about two years ago, publicly. So So two
0: two to four years of kind of focusing on career satisfaction. What is it that you have found about yourself in terms of what motivates you and your career satisfaction?
1: Well, I think, you know, I like to build. I like to experiment. I'm a driver. You know, I bring a lot of energy to to what I do. And so it's fun to, we build new product all the time. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, we, and we just listen to our members. We find out, I mean, it's as simple as like solving simple problems. Like people don't have a good professional bio, Mm -hmm. you need a bio on your internal platforms at a company, your LinkedIn, other, if you're on a nonprofit board for their website. And I'm like, this is a solvable problem. Bios have basically four sections. Let's just break this down for them. Give them a little video, some tips, whatever. And we have now we have a bio builder product. And in 10 minutes, people make these outrageous bios like they've never had, you Mm -hmm. know, yeah. And so I get excited to figure out a problem and to like build a solution and to see how it works. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just, so I'm in, in and pilots using like bleeding edge uh, way of developing technology. And so we're just able to move super fast. Like I can come up with an idea and we can have a deployed BioBuilder product in like two weeks. Right. It's just, is, and so that's um, been really fun. And then the thing is just to have the, to see the impact, you know, we're working one of the surprising things about pilot is women love pilot. Uh, men like Pilot a lot, but women are disproportionately all about Pilot. And we, we, we designed the company to be you know, very gender inclusive. And even our names, we had 478 names for the company and we narrowed it down to like 20 at the end. We had a marketing consultant and I went like totally rogue. I was like very excited about the name. And, um, and we test all these names and a number of them, um, women were really turned off by and, you know, but Pilot, everyone sort of liked and got behind. And it's really interesting. We're working even at MetLife with a group of all female sales executives and, uh, they want to, you know, what they want more females in sales leadership. And mm-hmm. these are, you know, qualifying people and lots of people make, you know, a lot of money and very you know, successful already, but, um, seeing the difference it makes for us to sort of give them permission and empowerment to speak up or to, 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 you know, to consider their own needs or to set boundaries or to, you know, just feel encouraged to go for something or to think differently um is so satisfying when I get the the note on LinkedIn or the email. I mean we've had people send me gifts and cards to our office. It's it's just really, you know, you know, they say, gosh, I've worked with coaches, I've been in the workforce for twenty years and I this is like an aha, uh-huh. this is like a timeline moment for me. And so I think When I think of my satisfaction, knowing that I'm making other people's lives better and when their spouses see it, you know, we hear about spouses that are like, oh, thank God you're doing the pilot thing because, you know, and it's helping out with a whole variety of things. And to me, it's like, wow, that, you know, if that's, if that's my role, you know, on this earth while I'm here, that's a pretty damn good role.
0: I love it. Well, you've talked a couple times and even your life goal was about making an impact. And that sounds like it's really uh, coming true with what you're doing in your business. But uh, we chatted briefly before we started recording. One of the things I saw recently, I follow you on social media, and you're a traveler. And so I love that that aspect of your life and a plain geek. Um, yep. You know, that's that's yep. interesting. But also you you mentioned recently in a post um, something about, you know, your your work and things that you've done around uh, being active in the LGBT community and how that had really been something that you were really proud of in terms of making an impact. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Absolutely. You know, so like spoiler. Alert, I'm gay. <laughs> Sorry, ladies. Womp womp, you know. Um, <laughs> um, And I'm sure about it. By the way, on occasion, I I get I get people that want to stress test it a bit, you know. And I'm like, no, like I've been there. Just all I can tell you is I am sure. Um, uh, You know, you know, I had come out to my family. You know, my freshman year of college and friends in high school. My senior year of college and had been out. But in the workplace it's more complex, right? And Mm -hmm. especially in global companies or on like in consulting where you're changing teams a lot and assignments. And, you know, I, uh, you know, had, had some weird experiences at a couple jobs and seeing some things that were just not, not right, you know, but of the moment they were, they're were probably, you know, okay, uh, sort of tolerated. And, and, you know, when I came to, to New York, I was worried about a lot of different things, but one of the things I was not worried about when I, you know, when I worked for Lockheed, I was very worried about being gay in a, you know, kind of former military kind of macho or whatever. And. Um, there's some reason like it wasn't the most um gay the place. It's evolved a great deal and they've invested a lot around diversity and I think it's improved a lot. But when I came to management consulting, it's the last thing I would have ever thought to worry about. Manhattan, this mo- you know, my firm pretty much only recruits from the Ivy Leagues. So and I was like I like again stuck in that back door <laughs> I went to my, <laughs> my second-tier school degree, you know. And um, my second week at the firm, um, this guy uh who's you know, was in leadership, associate partner. We're on this conference call with our whole practice it was all around the country. And I said something, I like congratulated someone on something. And he puts it the phone on mute and he said, and he just says like, you fag. Oh. And I, it was like in total shock. I could not believe he said that. So I, I was completely shut down and he said it kind of in a nasty way. And I left and I went back to his office. He wasn't there. I left him. I said, find me before you leave. It was a Friday evening. And I just said to him, I said, Hey, if I ever say anything that offends you, you know, please let me know. And I and I don't get offended easily, but he said something that like really offended me. And he goes, Oh, is it like the fact that he's like, he's like, I know, it's like it's a bad habit, it's an unprofessional in the workplace. I'm sorry. And I realized he didn't know that I was gay. Right. And I said, Well, you know that I'm gay. And it was a bit like the wicked witch of the west and wizard of oz, like melting down. Like he just like in his chair was just melting and melting as he heard this. And I wasn't trying to make him feel bad. And he's Jewish. And he said, Well, gosh, if you'd called me X, Y, or Z, they're really nasty names for a person who's Jewish, that would be terrible. And I just basically did the same to you, right? And, you know, we got complete about it and he's, uh, he's you know, and he, he took responsibility and, you know, apologized and I can promise you he's never called anyone that again,
0: you know? I would hope not. A-
1: and I walked out of there and I um, I sort of like, you know, I kind of like took my earrings off. I was like, oh, hell no, you
0: know, like I, I just, <laughs> you know, I, I just, I just Figuratively. I, figuratively, <laughs> exactly, you know.
1: I just thought, you know, I didn't move across the goddamn country, you know, and take all this risk and sell my house and, you know, be stressed out and trying to find an apartment and this and that um, to be putting up with this, right? And so, um, and we had very, we had no out partners at our firm. And so a bunch of colleagues, um, had this kind of like, you know, underground LGBT group that wasn't official. And I said, let's make this official. Let's talk to management. And I, um, a couple of months later, um, you know, cornered our head of HR when I was in Boston for training. I just said, Hey, like, you know, we're gonna start a group and I need your support and we're gonna need money and we need the CEO to send a message. And she was like, Whoa. And I just was like, hey, like, we gotta do this. And I sort of became the chief gay company wide, and um <laughs> and you know, we got the CEO to send a message out about how supportive he was. And you know, we did a lot of innovative things, even asking people, you know, if they're LGBT in our engagement surveys and the degree to which they were out. We found, for instance, that when uh, people were LGBT and they were out to their manager, they had a 20 um, point, percentage point higher satisfaction with their manager relationship. And satisfactions with manager relationships were the highest correlated driver of retention. So our CEO saw this and he goes, how do we, you know, how do we get everyone to come out? What's the size of a population? Da-da-da-da. Like he was just like so into it. And he needed reverse mentoring and changed our recruiting strategies and, you know, changed our benefits to be trans inclusive. And we did a ton of things. And it's. Uh, thriving group to this day, you know, wins awards, you know, and and here it felt like it started from nothing. And I remember even when, when the announcement came out, I was in Vancouver on a, a project with my team. And we had a, a guy from the Dallas office, not John, someone else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he reads the, the announcement comes out at, we're at dinner at this like Korean barbecue place sitting around this big table. And he reads the announcement about this and he goes,
0: are we getting sued is this a lawsuit is this a cover-up
1: I said, like and that was the you know i said no like we're trying to like like i said you know all of our competitors do this and we have some work to do around here because people are like knuckleheads about this so So it just really motivated me. And after we made a lot of difference there, I got involved in helping to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And Don't Ask, Don't Tell, I think most people don't realize it's about 15,000 people that lost their job in the military. And the military, when you join the military, it's usually your employer of choice. And -hmm. there's not like another military to go to. you know. Um, And so, um, and most people that were were, um, discharged didn't come out. You know, they were often outed by others. You could like, there's like a, a hotline. You could like anonymously report people as gay. And so, you know, you give someone, you know, orders, even a subordinate, and they didn't like it, they would out you. And it was really nasty. And they had sting operations around language school. It was just, it was a disaster. And so, you know, women would get raped and tell their doctor in the hospital, and they would get discharged because they were a lesbian. I mean, just really, really horrible things. And so I just was, I was never in the military, but I was just so incensed by all this. And so I joined an organization that um, had been working, providing free legal services. And most of the time when you're enlisted in the army, you don't have a family lawyer. And so free legal services, to these folks. And then we had hired the, um, the head of uh, lobbying at Verizon, a Fortune 10 company. And he took, I think, a 95% pay cut, even though we were offering him a six-figure salary, you know, um, to come work for us. And, and he and, and a lot of folks have been involved in the movement much longer than I um, helped lead the effort to get the votes in the Senate for the repeal. And mm-hmm. it was, uh, you know, sort of the domino that marriage equality and LGBT was really, you know, when we made the largest employer in the world, um, LGBT inclusive and friendly, or at least LGBT is a separate uh, situation in the military. But, but you know, it we were, you know, it was in, in the South, you know, and, and, you know, communities of color and lower socioeconomic class, etc. You know, it really created a title where there's a great documentary on HBO about it. But for me, it was just like an opportunity to um, make a difference for folks that didn't, you know, get the hand I was dealt in that regard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and and to this day it you know, motivates me a lot, LGBT rights, and there's a lot going on in our country. But but I think, you know, it's also, you know, leveraging. I talk to, to people a lot of like leveraging your background and your identity uh, for, for the good, you know, like being really authentic and open about it, mm-hmm. uh, which sometimes, you know, has consequences. And I even thought about, even you know, on social media, um, I, at Marsh, I worked with people in 100 countries, including, you know, Saudi, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
1: And I would go to these global leadership conferences in Asia and in Europe and other places. Uh, and you know and I was like gosh are they gonna think something should I be out online should I not and I just thought back to my Lockheed days and I thought we had security clearances right so it's a secret you know got dod clearances and I said the thing is is you don't ever want to be in a position to be blackmailed. Yeah. Right? That was a big thing. And so if you had a gambling problem, you were cheating or whatever and even like you know being out they said like let us know right? let the security officers know. So I thought, I don't ever want, you know, to like hold this over my head that I'm, that I'm gay. And so I just started putting it in my bios that I was sort of like, you know, the head of the LGBT group or I wasn't part of this thing and, and it just was there. And I mean, and I had some folks from the Middle East, uh, one person in particular from Turkey or our country there kind of got into it with me one night he thought it was inappropriate and he didn't support it or believe it. And I just, you know, and, um, and it was not very professional about it either. And I just said, Hey, like, you know, I said, we're a New York based company and, you know, you're a part of this and America is, well ahead of your country on, on this. And I, and I realize, and hopefully you guys will come around, but here's where I am and here's what I'm up to. And we have policies on this. So like, either going to be a part of that or like not. And there'll be constant, you know, I just, I just set a boundary with them, and, and um wasn't like nasty per se, but but I had just had to sort of set that boundary. And, and I'm in a position of privilege to do that right? Mm-hmm. As, a, as a white male and, you know, confident and experienced all these things, healthy. And so, but it's, it's been a very interesting thing uh, being gay. And I just, just yesterday I was at a luncheon and I just described, um, we talked a lot about authenticity and being genuine and being vulnerable. And it was with all all female HR executives in St. Louis. And I just said, you know, when your computer has too many programs on, right? You know, it slows down, kinda of bogs down. I said, that's what it's like to not be out. Mm-hmm. Right. There's just a bunch of stuff in the background that kind of bogs you down. And yeah. everywhere you go, you're watching your pronouns and what you say. People ask about what your weekend, and you're like, nothing. Like, you know, company holiday party, you don't go or you're alone, like whatever. There's such you know holidays, it's just the whole thing can be very, very, very awkward. And so, Mm -hmm. um, and I said, and, and whether you don't have to be LGBT to have a lot of programs going in the background, there's a lot of other things for everyone that sometimes is helpful to share or to disclose or to be open and, and I'm a big Bernie Brown, uh, you know, person and to be vulnerable about it and to, you know, and and to reveal so people can connect with you and understand you because that actually attracts people to you. So, um, the more I was out and the less of a big deal I made about being gay, um, my career. I mean, I can, just, I can track my outness and my 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 income, yeah. right? Like they, they, they trail together.
0: Well, I think that was what you know really caught my eye about the post that that you attributed that to kind of the trajectory of of your success. And it, obviously, you have a lot of skills and talents that uh, have created that as well. But it's I appreciate what you've done for your community and for all of us in um, the impact that you're making on people to do that. And I love what you said so often when we hear people struggle with things or try to make change, how you in that story shared that you correlated um, engagement to retention to dollars for the company and that got the attention of your leadership. Um, and so many people just go in and say, this is the right thing to do, or we need to do this. And it may be the right thing to do, but to really get the attention of leadership, you've got to correlate it to dollars. And I love how you did that. So that's amazing. Great job. Uh,
1: we, we had to slow John, our CEO, we had to like slow him down. Cause he's like, well, wait. So if, if, if LGBT people are out with their managers and they're just so much happier and more satisfied, should we just recruit a lot of out LGBT people? Cause is that illegal to ask if they're out in the thing? Because if we had more of them, I think it would mean that we'd have blah, blah, blah. And he was just going nuts. He just wanted to like turn it into like, you know, like, you know, a, a rainbow parade, you know, of our company, you know, and here where I'm thinking like, I'm like, this is the same company I just got called a faggot like two years ago and there was no out partners and all this like weird stuff. And we didn't necessarily have good benefits. And you know, here we are. Um, but that's, but again, to your point, I think, you know, what, no matter what case you're making for anything, for an initiative you want to drive, uh, for a hire you want to make, um, mm-hmm. for, for a, a policy position or a amicus brief, you want the company to sign on to mm-hmm. an investment, you know, tying it back into things that, you know, matter to the company. Now, Absolutely. I, I ran into the wall for six months at March talking about social media and I finally took the SM words out of my mouth and I talked about growth. And the people are like, come right in. And you know, and I just, you know, I didn't talk about social media. I talked about growth. And I said, Hey, I've got some technology that's going to help us grow. And I made the technology like in the background. I said, we've got to drive organic revenue growth. Here's a way to get people to know about our capabilities and work together. Da-da-da. And everyone's like, let's roll. And all of a sudden, like all of our sales leaders became the social media champions because we made it about growth.
0: Love it. Well, I just have one question after all of that amazingness <laughs> that you've shared. Do you still have the name tag? ben brooks entrepreneur did you keep it
1: you know i wish i did I will, i'll have to see if i got a selfie and i think i was that was like kind of pre-selfie days you know oh, oh, um
0: that's disappointing <laughs> but i may i may have to,
1: i may have like an artist like render something you know i've kept all my business cards over the years and name tags and my name place and stuff so i have all that but mm-hmm. but um but yeah no i i uh you know it's just it's you know paying attention i, I meditate every single day mm-hmm. i a, a vedic meditator it's like transcendental and i 20 minutes every morning. And so for instance, like 2017, I missed zero days. And it didn't matter if I was late or traveling or sick or hungover or stressed every single day I meditate. And part of it is just the to be aware and to be present because there are things like Ben Brooks entrepreneur that like, our clues, right? That's the Marco Polo. It's like, it's paying attention to be curious about, to, to be more patient with people, to to spot the sort of opportunities. And I think that's a big part of, again, the knowing yourself and the self-awareness in a career is part of finding that satisfaction is slowing down a bit, right? Mm-hmm. And, and being thoughtful and, and been introspective and in considering things a little bit more deeply.
0: Well, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. So if people want to connect with you online or find out more about you, how can they find you?
1: I'm very findable. So, um, <laughs> so I love to connect with people like LinkedIn. I share a lot on LinkedIn and that's a great place. Um, you know, I'm Ben Brooks in LinkedIn.com slash I N slash Ben Brooks and pretty active on Instagram as well. And Twitter, both Ben Brooks and is in New York mm-hmm. uh, and my Facebook's completely open. And so everything I post on Facebook is totally public. So if you want to check that out and follow a friend or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, that's great. And then our, our website for pilot is pilot.coach or coaching company. So it's pilot.coach. That's just the website. Mm-hmm. And, and we got a bunch of social media for pilot, but um, you can try out our product. We have a, a demo of one of our coaching uh, features that you can try right online about managing your reputation mm-hmm. and thinking about people talk a lot about brand, but we talk about kind of everyday behaviors that impact our reputation and the perception of you. And so it's a five minute thing. There's a little video we send you a report. You can check it out on our website uh, and we're going to be doing kind of a whole refresh of other r- resources and materials there as well.
0: All right. Well, we'll definitely link up to all of those things in the show notes. And I appreciate you sharing with us today and sharing more about your company and your journey, Ben. Thanks for being here with me. Pleasure to be here. If you want to raise your game at work, you've got to raise your impact. Find out Jennifer's 10 best strategies to make more of an impact at work at jennifermcclure.net slash 10 ways. That's jennifermcclure.net slash 10 ways.